0: Christians agree with atheists when atheists say people don't rise from the dead. We agree with that in every single instance. You are listening to Holy Words from Holy Cross, the sermon podcast of Holy Cross Evangelical Lutheran Church in Nazareth, Pennsylvania. We hope you find these words a blessing in your daily walk with God. Please visit us on the web at www.holycrossnazareth.org or in person at 696 Johnson Road, Nazareth, Pennsylvania. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Don't be all else to me, save that thou art... Why do you seek the living among the dead? Of all the resurrection accounts given to us in Holy Scripture, these words are perhaps the most memorable and most convicting. Like Pilate's words to Jesus during his trial, their brevity belies the immense scope of the question. Why do you seek the living? among the dead. For these words are addressed not just to the women who came to that tomb this first morn, but through the words of Scripture directly to us. If you have matured at all in this life, you know that there are things from your past in which you invested a tremendous amount of your energy and passion and time. Things that failed you ultimately failed to give you the life that you had hoped they would give you not when you failed to accomplish them but rather when you succeeded at them and even in the time after that first initial bliss that you had accomplished what you set out to accomplish you realized there was still a hunger inside for more that that thing had not filled you full full filled you Perhaps you gave your passion to popularity. Perhaps to accomplishments in sports or a career. Perhaps you gave energy to politics in hopes of improving the world. Or the arts in hopes of some insight in the world. Perhaps you gave your time and energy to relationships around you. that ultimately could not fill you full. Because right at the moment you succeeded in accomplishing what you succeeded in accomplishing, you discovered more was needed. This universal human conundrum, and it is universal, um, is often explored for us in the arts. One of my favorite pieces of art um, is The Voyage of Life by... Uh, American painter Thomas Cole. My kids have grown up seeing these paintings because they always hung in my office. My daughter has her own copy of them now that, that is in her bedroom. Um, these paintings are beautiful. Um, this is the first one. Whoops. There we go. This is childhood. Childhood. I, I don't know if you can see there. This is, there's a little baby right here in a boat with an angel looking over them. Look how lush and green it is. The world is full of promise. The child has this guardian spirit. It's almost like the Garden of Eden itself. And as the child progresses out, the world doesn't look all that different immediately. The child takes the rudder of the ship for themselves, pursuing their dreams, which are symbolized by that city up in the clouds. And the guardian spirit is somewhat... Distant, as a child sets out upon the adventure of life and yet we know what's coming next adulthood adulthood when life begins to beat you up not just the changes and chances that come at you from the outside but when you discover that your own pursuits came up short even in your accomplishment of them the world begins to look dark and God can seem to be distant. You can zoom in on the boat here. You'll notice the rudder is now broken off. The man is praying earnestly that he will not simply be dashed to pieces on the rocks ahead. A couple of uh, weeks ago, I took my children to, we all went to a, a concert by um, pop musician Toby Mack, and apparently he saw these paintings in the National Gallery was inspired by them also. Now, Toby Mack is a man at the pinnacle of his career. He has accomplished what very few musical artists actually manage to do, which is a career in pop music that spanned close to 30 years. He's still headlining concerts, and his latest work is better critically reviewed than his early work. He wrote a song inspired by this series of four paintings. And the verse that goes with this picture, adulthood, goes like this. In his song, Hello Future, he says, Hello, purpose, you've eluded me. I thought I'd find you in victory. I scaled the mountain just to find nobody beside me. Hello, purpose, don't leave me be. How has it been in your life? Perhaps if you are seeking popularity, if you're of the right generation, getting enough likes on your social media, right? Only to discover what the Romans knew a long time ago, that all fame is fleeting. Perhaps you pursued accomplishment in sports or in your career and you discovered that no matter how hard you try, our powers dry up and wither. You applied yourself to politics and discovered that for every injustice righted, there were not only two more injustices covered, but your solution gave rise to new injustices. You explored the arts and found that found that the arts can gesture at meaning, but they cannot bestow it. In relationships, we discover that affections alter, that our children grow up and leave home, that our loved ones die, abandon us, hurt us, betray us. These things, these things can hurt us deeply. So if these things are always destined to disappoint us, the, the pursuits of this world, why do we keep pursuing them? G.K. Chesterton in his book The Everlasting Man thought about this, and here's what he wrote. It's, it's, it's wonderfully incisive as most of his writing is. He said, Pessimism is not found in being tired of evil, but in being tired of good. Despair does not lie in being weary of suffering, but in being weary of joy. It is when, for some reason or other, the good things in a society no longer work that the society begins to decline, when its food does not feed, when its cures do not cure, when its blessings refuse to bless. We might almost say that in a society without such good things, we should hardly have any test by which to register a decline. That is why some of the static commercial countries from history like Carthage have rather an air in history of standing and staring like mummies, so dried up and swathed and embalmed that no man knows when they are new or old. As one critic summed up this whole passage, he said, meaninglessness does not come from being weary of pain. Meaninglessness comes from being weary of pleasure. Meaninglessness does not come from being weary of pain. Meaninglessness comes from being weary of pleasure. Chesterton's words could certainly describe our own culture, our own country. For we are, if nothing, a great commercial enterprise. And a lot of people dedicate a lot of energy to keeping that static that is predictable so the profit margin can remain high. So why do we continue to seek life from things that we know will ultimately fail to give them to us and leave us still hungry for more? There's lots of answers to that question. I think socially, there's a lot of pressure to do what everyone else is doing, right? That's normal. We all experience that at every stage of our lives. There's also a lot of pressure upon us commercially because if you come to the conclusion that the next thing you acquire, the next achievement you achieve will not make you any happier than the stuff you've already acquired and the stuff you've already achieved, you make a very poor consumer. Psychologically, I think we're afraid of being had. We're afraid of stepping away from the rest of our peer group. We're afraid people will look at us and say, oh, they think they're pretty high and mighty, don't they? We're afraid of getting it wrong. And that crosses over into the spiritual realm. Religious reasons why? Why we're afraid to step away from those things that fail to to feed us in this life is because we're afraid of getting it wrong. We're afraid of being had. We're afraid of guessing wrong or maybe we've come to despair about finding out the answer at all. And so we choose an avenue of pessimism Perhaps sometimes we're simply afraid of repeating the mistakes of religious people from the past. Now, this is a legitimate concern. But it's interesting to me that I never see people concerned about this in anything but the area of religion. With 60 million dead, directly attributable to the philosophy of atheism in the 20th century, maybe as high as a hundred million debt, I would think that my unbelieving friends and relatives would have the same anxiety about their unbelief that lots of people seem to have about religious belief. We have to get it right, we think. But the way to do that is not to be frozen by fear or some sort of vague anxiety, but rather to ask the questions, the deep questions that face the human condition in every day and age. Ask them seriously and give them the time and attention they are due. For you see, the atheist who looks at millions of corpses and says, well, if you're going to make an omelet, you've got to break a few eggs neither says nor does anything at variance with what they believe. For their belief system teaches them that human beings are merely matter and human consciousness an illusion, an epiphenomenon of matter. But the Christian who commits an act of religious violence or acts without love does so in direct violation of the command of his Lord who on the night in which he was betrayed said, Love one another as I have loved you. And as he was being dragged away to the cross, commanded his disciples to put down the sword. For he who lives by the sword dies by the sword. So we should ask these questions deliberately and seriously. How do we know? How do we know we're pursuing the right path? and the true God. I want to share with you an experience that a friend called and told me about yesterday. This friend lost her husband relatively young to a rare and very deadly form of cancer. When, they were, when he was diagnosed... Not only the both of them, but their entire church family wrapped around them and prayed earnestly for his deliverance from that dread disease. There were special intercessions, times of prayer and anointing, and everyone just poured themselves into this family and into their prayer life before the Lord. And yet in spite of that, after about 18 months of struggle, he fell asleep in in the Lord. What followed has been a hard time for the family. Hard emotionally as all those difficult emotions, the ups and downs of of the whole grieving process come upon them, but also hard for them spiritually as they ask questions they never wanted to ask about God's providence, His goodness, sometimes even His existence. Well... This just happened a few days ago. God gave this woman an incredible blessing. Call it a vision, call it a visitation. She got to spend time with her departed husband. They spent time doing some of the silly things that they had always done, like him sitting on the bed watching television with her. But as they talked, he was restored He wasn't emaciated like he'd been in his disease. He was in the robust bloom of health he'd been in his working days. His hair was all back and the same blonde color it had been when they'd been married. And in the midst of what she always describes as a complicated grief, in the midst of the emotions of that moment, she couldn't keep from asking the one question that's been torturing their entire family for these last months. And... She looked at her husband and she said, Is Jesus who we say he is? And he looked at her and took his hand, her hands in his and said, Yes, he is. For those of us who have not had such a special experience to speak into our grief, at least not yet, the resurrection of Jesus As an objective fact in history is God speaking to us that we are on the right path. The resurrection of Jesus is the most amazing fact of history because here is the truth. Christians agree with atheists when atheists say people don't rise from the dead. We agree with that in every single instance except one. And that one Occasion That one man rising from the dead changes the game for all of us. Jesus' resurrection from the dead is God certifying everything He said and everything He did. It is God saying, what He said is true, what He did was right. And He is my Son and your Lord and your Savior. You can trust and follow Him. If you haven't engaged in that active relationship with Him, I encourage you to do so now and not delay. Because that's what you were made for. See, the question still hangs in front of all of us. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Why will most of us come to this house of worship, sing praises to God for the greatest miracle that has ever happened, and then go back and mostly invest our lives in things we know cannot give us life? See, they won't give you life because you were designed by God and saved by Jesus for one thing, a relationship with God Most High that is so intimate and so fulfilling. It's beyond the scope of human words to express. And here's the beautiful thing. When you start to have that fulfillment in your life, in that active relationship with Him, All the other things fall in place. And you won't lose your joy in doing the things you do and accomplishing the things you accomplish and building the relationships you build because you won't be counting on any of them to provide the ultimate meaning in your life, something they can't do. They'll all be put in their proper place because God has His proper place in your life. God Wants to do that. God can do that. God will do that for us, and He can do it because He's alive. He is risen from the dead. Christ is risen. He has risen. Indeed. Christ is risen. He is risen. Indeed. Christ is risen. He has risen indeed. is risen. He has risen indeed. Amen. Amen. And hallelujah.